We'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. We're continuing, of course, our study of the gospel of Matthew. Matthew presents Jesus as the king of the Jews. We're near the end. He is on the cross. He is dying for the sins of mankind. He is what we say, the son of God who takes upon the sin of the world. Another way to look at it would be as Jesus is the satisfactory payment, not for our sins only, but for the sins of the entire world. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid not only for the sins of those who have believed in him, but for the sins of every human being. We see Jesus' statements when he's on the cross, and that's what we've been looking at as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. We've also taken the time to go to different places to look at the things that Jesus said when he was on the cross. As we think about Christ on the cross, we realize that the Jews charged him the fact they said that he is, Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God. The Romans charged him when they put him there that he is the King of the Jews. And we know that there's a, a sign above his head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And as he's hanging on that cross, uh, he says different things, and the this morning, as we look at our passage, he says something to the Heavenly Father, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we'll talk about that as a very powerful truth. What does it mean? And we never need to take for granted what our Savior Jesus Christ has done. Well, as we begin, you know, uh, we never like to be left out. We never like to be rejected. We never like to be left out of something, whether it's our friends, everybody's going to do something, they didn't invite us or call us, or whether maybe you're at work and a bunch of the people who work together are all friends, but you're not part of that, or maybe somehow you just feel like that you did something or something and they and, and you didn't get included, and it makes us sad to be rejected. Sometimes we might say we were forsaken, messed up that way. When we look in the Bible we're going to find that Jesus Christ was rejected. Jesus Christ was forsaken. He was rejected by the nation. He was rejected by his own family. He was rejected and forsaken by the disciples. And this morning, as we look at our passage, we're going to see that Jesus on the cross is actually forsaken by his heavenly Father. We'll see how that ties together. In fact, we raise this question, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus Christ was forsaken by the Father? Because that's what he says in verse 46. We'll get to it in just a minute. But he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This may say, sound strange, but I'm glad that he was forsaken. Because when he was forsaken, he was separated from the Father. He was separated, taking our sins upon himself. And that's for us. That's why he is able to be our Savior. Because he took our sins. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. And so we're going to see how all that fits together. If you remember, as we've been going through our study, we've seen that Jesus had, there are seven statements that Jesus says when he's on the cross. Here's what we looked at. The first one was he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Then he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's what he told the thief on the cross. He told his mother, he said, woman, behold your son. He basically gave his mother to John to be taken care of. This morning, we're going to see, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're also going to see, I thirst. We're going to see why he says that, how he says it. And then two more, one more, it is finished in John 19:30. And then, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That's seven statements by Jesus Christ on the cross. We have seen already the one where, the very beginning, which was several weeks ago, of course, where he said, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. We realize that forgiveness comes by faith in Jesus Christ. He died on the cross to pay for all sin, but to have eternal life, you need forgiveness, and forgiveness comes by faith. We also saw that he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He told the thief on the cross, the one beside him, that that day he would be with Jesus in paradise. If you remember, the thief on the cross didn't do anything, didn't do any good works. He actually just believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah and Savior. He actually said to Jesus, when you come in your kingdom, don't forget me. I want to be in the kingdom with 
with you. He was recognizing Jesus as the King and as the Messiah and as the Savior. And simply by faith, not by works, because he never did anything. He's on the cross. He is saved. And one of the great things we understand is that salvation is a gift. It is not by our works. It's not by what we do. It is not uh, joining a church, trying to be good, keep the Ten Commandments, all these things people say. It is simply faith alone in Christ to give us eternal life. The third one that we just that we saw last time was they told his mother there there at the foot of the cross was his mother Mary and John who was the youngest of the disciples he's the one that wrote the gospel of John he also wrote first second and third John and the book of Revelation he was there and he basically said to his mother that's going to be your son son that's going to be your mother he entrusted his mother to John at that time the best we can tell Jesus brothers had not believed in him yet later on at least two of the brothers uh, d- does believe in him later on. And so we- we'll see that. Um, the two statements today we're going to see is the one forsaken. He says, why, uh, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he also says, I thirst. Let me break down the passage for you. The 45 through 49 is going to, we're going to talk about Jesus and his relationship to the Father. We'll have to go to the Gospel of John, and I'll tell you where to go in a little bit when we get to the one where he says, I thirst. So we'll see how it is. Now, let me remind you, Jesus is on the cross. He has been placed on the cross. There's a sign above his head that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He's being mocked. The crowd down there is mocking him. The religious leaders, the crowd, the Roman soldiers, the, the, even the thieves, they're all making fun of him. They're coming by and saying things like, if you're the Son of God, come off the cross and we'll believe in you. He is the Son of God. He cannot come off the cross because he stays on the cross to pay for our sins. If he came off the cross, he wouldn't be the Savior. So he's staying on the cross. They're making fun of him. They're saying all kind of different things. And let me give you some details. In Mark chapter 15, we see that Jesus Christ was put on the cross at nine o'clock in the morning. That was called the third hour of the day. I want you to understand that the night before, two different times the night before, he had been tried by the Jews. Very early that morning, he was tried by the Jews. All three times, he was found guilty. He was then taken to the Romans, and he was tried three times before the Romans, one before Pilate, one before Herod, and then back to Pilate again, all three times found not guilty. And all by this time, they take Jesus and put him on the cross. So by nine o'clock in the morning, he's already gone through three trials before the Romans and one before the Jews. And by nine o'clock, they've put him on the cross. So Jesus is on the cross, and what we realize is that something happens, that from 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, darkness falls upon the land. And this is when Jesus is forsaken. This is when Jesus is paying for our sins. So if you'd been there and you were at the crucifixion and you're all down there with the crowd and Jesus has been on the cross for about three hours with the other people and suddenly at around midday when the sun should be shining the brightest, suddenly it begins to get dark and dark and it's like nighttime. Darkness falls upon the land. And what we realize is that symbolic that God is showing us that he is taking the sins of mankind and he is judging sin and he's placing it on Jesus Christ. And what we realize is that Jesus is taking our sin and he's being separated from the Father. You remember, the wages of sin is death. Death is always separation. The payment for sin is separation. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We owe God death. We're supposed to be separated from God. But Jesus took our place and on the cross, 
Jesus is separated from the Father. That's why everything turns dark. And so the crowd is mocking. They're saying, come down. And suddenly things begin to change and they begin to look around and everything begins to get dark. And so look at Matthew chapter 27. Look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. The ninth hour is three o'clock in the afternoon. So it goes dark from uh, 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock, and darkness comes right in the middle of the day. If you had been there, what would you have thought? I mean, you may be one, of, let's say you're that Roman soldier, and you've seen a bunch of crucifixions, and you, you know, and you've heard him say, forgive them, and you've seen all these different things, and then suddenly everything begins to turn dark. It's like nighttime comes in the middle of the day. This is Jesus taking the sins of mankind on himself. It's judgment for sin. I want you to realize that the Bible tells us he was put on the cross to take our sin. First Peter 2.24 says he bore in his body our sins on the cross. Jesus paid for our sins on the cross. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his love toward us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. First Peter 3.18 says Christ died for us, the just for the unjust. He is the righteous one with the unrighteous ones. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For God has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He took our sin. And of course, John 1.29 says, He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Understand that when Jesus was on the cross, it turned dark from 12 to 3 because Jesus is taking the sins of mankind. Sin is always uh, separates. The wages of sin is death. Death is always a separation. And so let's think for a second, how do we view sin? Sometimes we say, well, sin, I mean, certain things right, certain things wrong, but it doesn't really matter, and, and it's not that important if we always do what is right. Do we realize that just one sin put Jesus Christ on the cross because the wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid for the sins of mankind? Now, here it is. Jesus is now separated from the Father. Look what happens. Look at verse 40, uh, 46. About the ninth hour... About three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthini. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here he is. He cries out. It's now dark. The sins of mankind is placed on Christ. The fellowship with the Father is broken. And by the way, I didn't put all this up there, but I want you to understand, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's several things to think about. First of all, why does he say, my God, my God? Well, first of all, because he's saying, my God, the Father, and my God, the Spirit. He is being separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's never happened before ever in all of eternity because the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God and three persons, have always been in perfect fellowship and harmony. And at this point in time in history, the Father and the Spirit are separated, or Jesus is separated from the Father and the Spirit. I think that's one reason he says, my God, my God. Second is because he's now out of fellowship and separated, he doesn't call God the Father here. He calls him, my God, my God. Later on, at the very end, when he's back in fellowship, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So there's some incredible things that happen here. So as you study it, as you study it more in detail, you can see those kind of things. So he cries out, my God, my God, this is three o'clock. By the way, notice it says that at the ninth hour, at the ninth hour, I want you to understand in, in the temple, 
Early in the morning, about nine o'clock in the morning, they would go offer a sacrifice. At three o'clock in the afternoon, they would offer a sacrifice. Jesus was put on the cross at the same time they offered what they called the morning sacrifice. Jesus is separated from the Father in the afternoon at exactly the same time they would offer their evening sacrifice. He indeed is the Lamb of God who is taking away the sin of the world. And so what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. It's a very strong word. The word forsaken in the Greek there means to be left behind. It means to be rejected. Tim Stafford writes and says, God is heaping human sinfulness on Jesus and he's being separated from the Father. Jesus is feeling the weight of the sins of mankind. I want you to understand that's every one of us in this room, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've sinned in the past, we sin now, and we're going to sin in the future. Every sin that we've ever done, past, present, and future, for every human being that's ever lived, past, present, and future, the sins of man mankind were placed on Jesus Christ. When he took our sin, he became sin for us, and the fellowship is broken between the Father and the Spirit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So you understand that anything you've ever done wrong, Jesus Christ died on the cross and was separated from the Father as he paid for the sins of the world. How was Jesus forsaken? Let me tell you, he was forsaken a lot of ways. First of all, do you know he was forsaken by this world? John chapter 1 verse 3 says he made the world, but in John 1 10 says he came into the world, but the world didn't even know him. The world rejected him basically as a whole. Do you realize that he also was rejected by his own nation? John 1.11 says he came into his own, his own people, and his own received him not. The nation of Israel as a whole rejected Jesus Christ. The third thing, he was forsaken by his disciples. He told them that when he got arrested, they would all run off, and they all said, we will not run off. As soon as they arrested him, every one of them ran away. They were, he was forsaken by his disciples. And then last but not least, I've got to hear he was forsaken by the Father. We could put up there he was forsaken by the Father and the Spirit. When he took the sins of the world on himself, he died for us. John Walbert, who was the president of Dallas Seminary when I was there, he says this, he was bearing the sins of the entire world and the Father had to turn away, had to break the fellowship. Charles Spurgeon said this, that Jesus stood in our place so we could stand in his. Now something I want you to think about, I want you to understand this. When Jesus dies spiritually, he's dying spiritually, being separated from the Father. This is not his physical death. This is his spiritual death. He is paying for the sins of the world. The payment is made. Now, a lot of people think that when Jesus died physically, they'll say, when did Jesus pay for our sins? And they say, when he died on the cross. And they're thinking about when he died and says, I die, and that he died physically. Look, the payment for sin is before he dies physically. The payment for sin happens when Jesus Christ is separated from the Father. I want you to understand that. It's very powerful. The physical death, when Jesus dies physically, the payment is already made before he dies physically. You know how we know that? What were the last words Jesus said? The last words he said was, into your hands I commit my spirit. But the next to the last words that Jesus said is, it is finished. It was paid for before he dies physically. Just remember that. So when people say, when did Jesus pay for our sins? And they say, when he died on the cross. That's true. But it's not his physical death on the cross. 
It's a spiritual death when he was separated from the Father. That's when he took our sin and paid the penalty. Now, he died physically on purpose because he died so he could rise again and conquer death. He died spiritually to pay for sin. He rose from the grave to conquer death. That's why he did it. So it's very powerful truths. And so Jesus says that the payment has been made right before he dies physically. He says it is finished. Several weeks ago, I told you to read Psalm 22 because Psalm 22 is a foreshadow of Jesus' death on the cross. Psalm 22 was written by King David a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born. Psalm 22 was written a thousand years before Jesus was born, and yet Psalm 22 tells about Jesus' death on the cross. If you remember several weeks ago before I got the virus and wasn't here, I told you that, that read Psalm 22. I want to remind you of some things. Watch this. How does Psalm 22 start? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar to you? That's Jesus on the cross. That's King David writing that a thousand years before Jesus is ever born. Verse 7 of Psalm 22. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their head. Do you know that in Matthew 27, verse 38 says, and they were passing by, hurtling abuse, wagging their heads at him. That's Psalm 22. Verse 14 says, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. We told you that when we talked about crucifixion, they put people up there and, and that push, pulls their bones out of joint and they suffocate. If you look at Psalm 22, verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me, a band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and feet. That's Jesus on the cross. They pierced his hands and feet. And I want to remind you that when this was written a thousand years before Jesus Christ, there was no crucifixion. They didn't start crucifixion. First of all, after, uh, after David, the nation split, and later there came the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Medo-Persians, and the Greco-Macedonians, and then the Romans. The Babylonians and the Assyrians are the first ones to do any kind of crucifixion, but it wasn't crucifixion hands and feet. They took a person, and they, took a, uh, they sharpened a big pole, and they just stuck a person on a pole. By the time you get to Romans, the Romans actually crucified people by putting their hand, you know, nails in their hands and their feet, and they let them basically suffocate. The Romans took it a long time. Where somebody else would just put them on a pole and kill them, by the time you get to the Romans, they pierced their hands and their feet. When David wrote this, under the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm sure he said, what does that mean, they pierced my hands and my feet? He probably at the very start of the, of the thing said, what does it mean, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When David wrote Psalm 22, if you notice the last one, verse 18, they divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. That's exactly what they did to Jesus on the cross. I guarantee you when David wrote that, he probably thought, I don't know really what this means. And so what we realize is God's word is perfect. And even Psalm 22, a thousand years before, tells us that what's going to happen, that that's Jesus Christ on the cross. It's very, very powerful. So this is a picture of Christ on the cross. Now look what happens. It says in verse 47, some of those, because he says, Eli, Eli, lama tamathini, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? By the way, the word Eli, Eli, Eli means my God, my God. That's Aramaic. And so he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who were standing there, when they heard this, they began saying, this man's calling for Elijah. When they heard Eli, Eli, they thought he was saying Elijah, Elijah. They thought he was saying Elijah. And so they said, this man is calling for Elijah. Now, one of the truths of the scripture is that before the second coming of Christ, as he said to the kingdom, Elijah, 
Elijah's supposed to come. And so they're thinking, well, maybe he's calling for Elijah. He's claimed to be the king of the Jews. Maybe Elijah's going to come. Let's just see if Elijah's going to come. And so they think he's calling for Elijah. And notice what happened. Immediately one of them ran, and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. And so they, they did this. Now, let me, let me tell you what. If you understand that Jesus on the cross, he's probably up in the air where you really couldn't reach him. Maybe, maybe this is about where his feet are, and then the rest of him is up there. And they want to give him something to drink because we're going to find out that he's going to say, I'm thirsty, I'm thirsting. And so they run, and they find like a sponge, and they put it down in what vinegar is called cheap wine, and then they put it on a stick, Actually, we're going to find at another place, it's hyssop, which is like a, a branch of something. And then they lift it up and put it up where, he can, where it can touch his lips. That's what they're going to do. So this guy says, one of them immediately ran, took a sponge, filled it with the sour wine, which is vinegar, actually, and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. Now, he's, we don't see it in Matthew, but he's already said something. He said, I thirst. We're going to see it in just a minute. But they gave him the sponge. And they're saying, let's see if Elijah will come save him. Look at verse 49. The rest of them said, let's see if Elijah's going to come and save him. They're thinking he's going to be saved. And listen, here's the truth. They, they've said stupid things like, if you're really the Son of God, come down off the cross. Jesus could look at him and say, because I am the Son of God, I cannot come off the cross because I'm paying for the sins of the entire world. That's why he's there. And so they said, let's see if Elijah's going to come and save him. And so we're going to find this, uh, that's the sponge and everything. We're going to see now the fifth saying. Now, if you remember, we just got through seeing, my God, my God, why has that forsaken me? And then he says, I thirst. And in order to really see that, let's turn to John 19. So hold your place if you want to in Matthew 27 and turn over. Of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the fourth gospel. And turn over to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And we're going to start... Looking at verse 28, John 19, verse 28, and we're going to see what does he say and what do they do. So verse 28 says, and after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I am thirsty. Now, I want you to look at the verse carefully. He says, after this, Jesus, knowing all things had already been accomplished. What had been accomplished? Well, think about it. What had been accomplished is this. He's already became, left the glories of heaven to become a man. Now, you've got to understand something, and most of us know this. But at a point, here's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All spirit beings, by the way. At a point in time in history, Jesus Christ leaves the glory of heaven and comes to this earth and is born as a human being. He's the God-man. He is born, he becomes a man. Why? So that he can die for mankind. He becomes a human being so he could die. So he became a man. He fulfilled the ministry. Isaiah 35 and 61 talks about the ministry of the Messiah. He fulfilled the ministry. He is now put on the cross to pay for sin, and he's already been separated from the Father, separated for sin. He has taken the sin of the world on himself. I want you to remember something. The first time Jesus came to this earth, he came to die on the cross to pay for sin. The second time Jesus comes to this earth, he is coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords to rule in righteousness and justice. So what does he say? Notice in John 19, verse 28, and after this, Jesus, knowing all things had, been, had already been accomplished, he's done it all, the payment's been made, everything is done to fulfill Scripture, he said, I am thirsty He's thirsty. Now, why? He says this because what he wants them to do is to run, get, get that vinegar and put up to his lips. 
so that he can speak plainly because he's got two more things to say. But the next thing he's going to say is probably the most important one for us. And we have to see it next week. But I'll give you a little hint, okay? We're going to get the hint. But he says, I am thirsty. And so look at verse 29. A full jar of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. So they went and got the sponge, put it in the stuff, put it on the hyssop, put it on the branch, and lifted it up so he could touch his mouth so that he could say something. And by the way, This fulfills scripture as well. Psalm 69 verse 21 says, They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar, sour wine, to drink. If you remember, when they first put Jesus on the cross, they took some myrrh with gall in it and gave it to him to drink, and it was used to help people when they were being crucified, sort of to deaden the pain. He wouldn't take that. But toward the end, it says, And for his thirst... They gave me vinegar to drink. He took the sour wine so that he could say these next words. And I want you to see them, and, uh, and, and then we'll, come, we'll really hit them next week. But look down at verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, what does he say? He says, it is finished. The payment has been made. It's all been done. Now, let me stop for just a second, and let's just realize... Um, What's going on here? Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and men. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. We're to be separated from God. So what did Jesus Christ do? Jesus left the glories of heaven and became the God-man. There's one mediator between God and men. It is the man Christ Jesus. That's in 1 Timothy. So Jesus came to take our place to be the mediator. If you remember the story of the Bible, perfect God brings sinful man back to himself using his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the Savior, and he's using Jesus as the mediator to save mankind, that whoever believes in Jesus will never perish but have eternal life. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, it basically says that God was using Christ, reconciling men to himself. So Jesus Christ reconciles mankind to God. That's what he's there for. And I want you to understand that sometimes people say, well, try to be good or be the best you can be or I hope I get to go to heaven or I hope I, you know, I, hope I can live good enough or one day I'll stand before God and hopefully he'll say you can get to come to heaven. The bottom line is this. There's none righteous, no, not one. None of us measure up. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But Jesus came and took our place. He took our sins upon himself. He paid the penalty of sin. He was separated from the Father. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The payment has been made. It is finished. Jesus Christ has done it all. He is the Savior of the world. And all the Bible says for us to do is to believe in him for eternal life. God so loved the world, that's us, that he gave his son, that's Jesus, to die and rise again, that whoever, any person, would believe in him, just faith, not only would never perish, but have everlasting life. That's the story. This is how God reconciles man to himself through Jesus Christ. And we're going to see really the details of that next week. This week we just basically ended with our thirst because we're just looking at that part. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So why? Why did they give me, after the drinking the wine, he is now, or the cheap wine, he is now able to speak clearly. Why? Because he's going to say, it is finished. The payment has been made. We'll see that 
next time. Let me, let me just, uh, I mean, when you look at this story and when you see what we're watching and we're looking at the seven statements of Christ on the cross and, and whether you're in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, each one gives more details than the other in different ways, we're seeing Jesus Christ die for us to be the Savior of the world, and whoever will believe in him will never perish but have eternal life. Let me give you a couple of quick applications. The first one is this. Let's realize that Jesus was forsaken by the Father, so we don't have to be forsaken. He died in our place. Jesus Christ took was on the cross and was spiritually separated from the Father. Think about that. Jesus died on the cross as our substitute. We should have been there. And in the sense of if Jesus hadn't come and died and paid for sin, we'd all be separated from God because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. We're supposed to be separated from God, but Jesus took our place. He died as our substitute. The payment for sin has been made. And by the way, the payment for sin is made for every human being, past, present, and future. Sin is not the issue. When people talk about, well, you've got to live a good life, or you've got to clean up your act, or you've got to quit sinning in order to be saved, salvation is not because you deal with your sin. Your sin has already been dealt with. Salvation is that you believe in Jesus Christ to give you eternal life. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. We are trusting in Him. And by the way, that's the promise. Sometimes people are confused. People say, well, just believe in Jesus. And I always say to them, believe what? What are you supposed to believe? Faith has a proposition. There's something you believe. We're believing that Jesus Christ will give to us eternal life. That's what we're trusting. Jesus died on the cross, paid for sin, rose again, conquering death, and he offers as a gift to every one of us eternal life. So we are trusting Christ to give us eternal life. That's salvation. And so we are saved simply by faith in Christ. The second thing, just to think about, is let's trust the perfect word of God. Well, you have the Bible, and the Bible is perfect and true. It is alive, powerful, and sharper than two-edged sword, piercing for as the division of the soul and spirit. Both of the joints and marrow is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of heart. Never comes back void. It is perfect. It is profitable. It is the perfect word of God. Think about this. Psalm 22, written by David a thousand, <clears throat> a thousand years earlier, is fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. Do you understand that every promise in the Bible, especially any promise that is for us, is always going to come true? Every promise in the Bible comes true. There's some promises in the Bible that aren't for us. They're for the nation of Israel or somebody else. But there are promises for us. You know what he promised us? He promised us eternal life. He promised us a home in heaven. He promised that we'd be in the kingdom. He promised us a new body. Those are all promises, and I guarantee you, whatever he says, he is able to do. He keeps his promises. Let's trust the perfect word of God.